we have with us today, we're going to move into our uh, substantive topic here on HIV prevention. This is the third in a three-part series on this subject. We started with talking with uh, Jessica Terpstra of the Deschutes County Health Department just about sort of general concepts. And we had three uh, gay men on uh, about a month ago, right before Central Oregon Pride, talking about their stories and experiences. And then today we are very fortunate to have with us two local health care providers who are on the front lines of this work and a lot of medical care in general here, but this specifically with HIV prevention. And we'll be talking more about the role of healthcare providers in helping with HIV prevention. The basic goal here is to end all new HIV transmissions in Central Oregon, which sounds incredible if, if that can actually happen. Let's, let's introduce folks real quick and then um, we'll, we'll get rolling. We have with us, we're very fortunate, Carrie Gillette who is a certified physician assistant at Mosaic Medical here in Bend, and also Joanna McCabe, a family nurse practitioner, a doctorate in nurse, nurse practitioner. How do you say that? Okay, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't know. It's a DNP. It's a doctorate degree. Anyway, I just wanted to thank you both for being here. I'd like to ask each of you if you can tell me, for you personally, I want to get into the more into the medicine and some of the technical stuff, but for you personally... Why is it important for you in your medical practice to work on HIV prevention? For me personally, I do mostly reproductive health and sexually transmitted infection health. And it is a huge impact to those with HIV. And it's still a fear out in the community for people that they're going to contract HIV. We're also seeing HIV cases rise in the region. And if we can prevent that, then that is best for our communities. And that was uh, Joanna, by the way. And okay, uh, so Carrie, from you, what, what is it for you? Why are you involved in this particular, or why do you believe this is important in your work? So for me, this started growing up overseas and doing some international work in Africa and then starting my career working at the jail in Washington, D.C. And in Washington, D.C., um, they have epidemic levels of HIV where one in 13 people are HIV positive. And so for me, it's always been an integral part of my medical practice. And coming here and working in primary care at Mosaic Medical, to me, it was just natural and normal that this would continue to be a mainstay part of my preventive medicine for folks and given the fact that we think that there's perhaps about 165,000 people in the United States that have HIV and don't know, it's really important that we are screening everyone and then also normalizing those conversations. What do you mean when you say normalizing those conversations? So to what Joanna was just saying, there's still a lot of stigma, unfortunately, and we've made so much progress in our treatment efforts for HIV that I think for us as medical providers, we no longer see it as a death sentence where it it used to be that way. We also know that we can't categorize exactly who is at risk. We technically are all at risk and we're seeing the numbers rise in populations that maybe we wouldn't necessarily assume are most at risk. So from that standpoint, I think we need to normalize it as a community where we're not as afraid to talk about it with our healthcare providers, with our sex partners. 
because we have so many more options available than we did. And if we can make it part of our normal health care experience, um, then we're more we're going to feel more comfortable as healthcare providers to test and treat folks. And our patients hopefully will feel more comfortable coming forward and say, hey, I think I might have had an exposure or I'm engaging in this or that risky behavior. Um, what do you think? And I'll add to that that I think as providers, we need to be taking thorough and accurate sexual histories and asking patients alone in the exam room and getting honest information from them and asking if they've been tested at least once in their lifetime. I think taking a thorough sexual history can be very uncomfortable for lots of providers and for patients, but the more we do it, the more comfortable we get and the patients come to expect it and it doesn't carry any stigma. It's just a part of your health and a part of your life. How do you make people feel more comfortable when you're taking that history? Since we do this all day long at the health department, we approach it like a normal conversation. We ask every patient the same questions every visit, and we don't judge. We say we don't care who or what you're doing things with. We just want to make sure that you're making educated decisions and that you're protected. Yeah. I think for me, saying your sexual health is an important part of who you are and your normal health. So. I'm worried about your entire health, and so it's important to me that we talk about all of these things. And then also, as to what she said, um, saying that this is a judgment-free zone. You know, it's my goal to um, really help evaluate your risk. And the other piece that as we become more experienced and um, intelligent about our LGBTQ patients or patients who are having sex with multiple partners of multiple genders, how we ask the question is um, really important. And so when I went through training, it was, are you having sex with men, women, or both? Well, that's no longer entirely inclusive. And so what I try to do is word it, what are the genders of your uh, sex partners? But really, even even more than that, it's, it's just what body parts are involved and where are they going, right? That's really helps us identify exactly what the risks are, because we know that HIV transmission risk really depends on, you know, where that exposure takes place. So, for example, we miss the majority of gonorrhea diagnoses if we're only swabbing the urethra to get a little physiologically technical there, as opposed to when we miss anal swabbing as well. So we really need to know where the exposure takes place. And, you know, as she said, trying to say, hey, this is just part of helping protect you. One of the tenants, uh, having done this show a couple times now, are the principles in terms of HIV prevention is universal testing. So... I guess universal means everybody, but I guess one of the questions I have is, are you more likely to recommend testing for someone based on something you hear in their sexual history? Absolutely. There are certain populations of patients that, based on lifestyle, are at increased risk for transmission. And so there are certain patients that we would want them to test every three to six months. Everybody should be tested at least once in their lifetime. But depending on the sexual practices and partners and potentially injectable drug use, it changes how frequently you should be screened. And so I offer annual STD screening for everyone, and I try to word it that way so that when folks come in, it's, hey, let's do your annual STD screening, and that includes HIV, syphilis, gonorrhea, chlamydia, you know, the whole gamut that way. Even though it's once in your lifetime is sufficient for a lot of people, that's part of just normalizing, hey, this is an annual test that I do, and uh, making that part of their normal expected care. 
In terms of getting people tested, what are the what are the logistics of that? For county health departments, is actually fairly easy. The Oregon State uh, Lab does most of our testing. As a nurse practitioner, I can also order labs from, let's say, an outpatient lab. So what I have to know is, based on your insurance coverage, where is the best place for you to get tested? Is it for me to draw your blood and send it? Or is it for me to write the order and you go to an outpatient lab and have it done? Some commercial insurances will cover the outpatient lab, but they will not cover the Oregon State Lab. So OHP makes it very easy because OHP covers the testing and we can do all of it in the clinic and then send it to the Oregon State Lab. Okay, and then there's also a a van Yes. uh, I I, I always forget what it's called. So we have a mobile medical van. It is a Mosaic mobile medical van. And um, every day of the week, it is located somewhere differently around our community. I am on our van on Wednesdays. So in the morning, we are parked outside of the Ben Methodist Church, actually just right across the street from where we are. And they serve a meal to the homeless there. And we are available for anyone to walk on and receive medical care. And then also in the afternoon, we are parked over by the county where folks get uh, food stamps and um, just really serve uh, people out in the community where they are. I can draw labs on the van, and we are working on having rapid testing available on the van as well. But oftentimes we are parked next to the county uh, needle exchange van as well, or they use it for a variety of things. But when they're over with us, they're, and they, they oftentimes um, offer rapid testing as well. So we're really just trying to get testing out to the community where folks can just come on and find out their status in a matter of minutes. Right, and the rapid testing is um, very rapid. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right and easy, actually. If you were listening, I had it done during the course of this show, the first time we did one of these things, uh, the, the tiny little needle prick at the very beginning of the show, and the test was done by the time the show was over. And so um, so we're back uh, speaking with um, Joanna McCabe and um, Carrie, whose last name I keep dropping till that <laughs> thank you sorry like about that I, I lost my nose there we go all right all right uh, so there is also um there's a medication right that can help people um i guess there's two kinds right there's prep which can help people can help prevent people from acquiring hiv is that right can you talk about that joanne on how that how that works so prep is a medication it's also commonly known as truvada And it's 92% effective at preventing HIV infection if you take it on a daily basis. So for a couple that is what we call discordant, so if one partner has HIV, this the other partner can take the PrEP and it decreases the risk of transmission of HIV to that partner. So I'd also like to add that it's 70% effective in reducing transmission for for IV drug users. So that's a population that also should be able to access Truvada. Okay, so 70% for IV drug users and um, 92% for uh, sexual partners. And what, um, how, how do people acquire, how do people get PrEP? How do, yeah. I think for me, people can ask for PrEP. Ask your primary care provider, ask a provider, especially if the provider hasn't brought it up and hasn't taken a sexual history, advocate for yourself and just say, hey, I'm interested in PrEP. In our county, in Crook County, people can make an appointment at the health department and we'll do an intake history and I can provide PrEP through the health department and provide that prescription and the monitoring for the medication. 
Oftentimes I try to ask patients, um, especially if I hear that they're having multiple partners or engaging in other high-risk behaviors, um, lots of anal sex or, um, like I said, multiple partners or partners that they don't know the status of. Um, and I'll ask, hey, do you, do you know about PrEP? Do you have any friends that are using PrEP? Um, can we talk about it? And that this seems to go back to something we talked about at the beginning is normalizes this conversation. I mean, getting people to the point where they're comfortable raising these kinds of things. And and, um, and so I, because I'm just kind of thinking of a typical doctor's office of someone might not feel all that comfortable. Those aren't often the most relaxing, uh, comfortable environments. So uh, what what would you say to, to medical uh, providers who maybe aren't, or I guess both providers and patients who, well, providers who aren't doing this sort of thing, who aren't taking these detailed sexual histories and, and making their patients feel comfortable. Is there a is there anything that you found that works really well? Practice. <laughs> Stick your toe in the water and practice, mm-hmm. and let the patient know if you're new to asking the questions and practice and make it the same type of environment we would for alcohol use screening or Mm -hmm. depression screening or suicidal or domestic violence screening this is these are questions we ask all of our patients so we can provide you the best care possible they might be uncomfortable i would appreciate your honesty yeah one thing that i found when i was um reading up in preparation today was that uh, folks had on average seven visits with a healthcare provider in the prior year, um, uh, the the year prior to when they were diagnosed. That means they were in and out of offices having conversations with providers and it was missed average of seven times. To me, that's unacceptable. We need to own that as healthcare providers and, and recognize that we have to check our own discomfort at the door and really do what's what's best for our patients um, regardless of you know how comfortable or uncomfortable it makes us feel personally um, if somebody progresses to stage three um, and HIV and has AIDS the average lifespan is three years that's pretty dramatic um, what's amazing about HIV care at this stage is that we really can think of it as you know a, a chronic illness perhaps with even less risks or side effects or comorbidities than diabetes because our medications are so good so if we can identify folks that are positive and get them on HIV treatment they can live long happy healthy lives and die of a heart attack like the rest of us it's the folks that get missed that that, that really that burden falls it does fall largely on our shoulders and we we really need to step up what about from from the patient standpoint now, um, in terms of getting asking those questions? I mean, that seems like that might not necessarily be the easiest thing to do either. Um, any any suggestions on that? Well, uh, because I work in primary care, I am seeing patients ideally more regularly than a than a, a one off visit. Um, and so ideally, I am trying to establish rapport with them over time so that they, even if they don't feel comfortable talking about these things the first visit, they might the next time. Um, so uh, I think for primary care provider, you know, every we all, we all should be asking if we're in a preventive care role. But um, that's the value of the primary care patient partnership of, you know, establishing with somebody that you feel comfortable with. And if you don't feel like you can ask your provider um, 
questions that are like that that are uncomfortable it's okay to switch primary care providers ask around ask your friends is there somebody that they feel like they could talk to about anything Um, because it's more important to me that we remove those barriers to folks getting care and so if the barrier is that you just don't feel comfortable with your provider it's okay to switch to somebody else we need to not take that personally And I see folks that come to me for their sexual health needs and have primary care providers that attend to all their other needs. Mm -hmm. So find someone. If it's not your primary care, contact your local health department, contact your local public authority. Find someone that I'm pretty spoiled when patients come to me, they know what we're talking about. So okay. it's they come to me searching, you know, looking for contraception or reproductive health needs. Um, and so I don't, they know what to expect. And then one other thing, I wanted to talk about another, there's another medication. Um, I believe it's called PEP. PEP is uh, post-exposure prophylaxis. Okay. So this is what somebody would take typically for approximately a 28-day course um, after a potential exposure. So this would be if a patient comes in and says, listen, I, I just had sex with somebody who I heard through the grapevine might be positive, or I don't know, but I, I think there's a chance. Or if you got a, if a healthcare worker got a needle stick on the job or something like that where you, you think you had a high-risk exposure, um, you would start this medication within 72 hours to decrease your risk of actually contracting the virus. That's important, though, right? Absolutely. I mean, some people can actually, there is actually something that you can do. You have to act quickly. Correct. Within 72 hours of, of when you of when you think the exposure. And I know how I got that confused because the idea that if it's, there's undetectable, it's almost a very, very slim chance of transmission. I think that's where I was getting that's, confused, right? That's true. U and equals U is how they described it to me. And that's what's so exciting about our, our medications these days. If folks are compliant and take their meds every single day, they we they're they're listed as having undetectable HIV status means which means that there's there's virus there, but it's in such small quantities we can't even detect it on a lab test. And the CDC at this point is pretty comfortable saying that if you have undetectable virus in your body, even though you're positive, it's almost close to impossible that you're going to transmit it to your partners, which is wonderful news. Back to some basics. There are other other things people need to do. The medication is not the only thing, right, in terms of preventing transmission. Correct. They should be wearing condoms and using protection and choosing their partners and being screened on a regular basis. And by screened, you mean tested? Yes. Okay. <laughs> Just yeah. Another thing that's important to, for folks to keep in mind, too, is that if you have other sexually transmitted infections, such as gonorrhea, chlamydia, or trichomonas, your risk of getting HIV goes up because of the irritation and a few other things that having to do with your immune system, just having those other infections there, if you were exposed to HIV, you'd be at higher risk of contracting it. So for that that reason, those condoms are so important, but also keep in mind barriers in general, right? As going back to what body parts are going where, um, there are other barrier products such as dental dams that decrease risk of transmission because uh, sexually transmitted infections can be or can be diagnosed orally or anally not just vaginally or in the male urethra and also for people who uh, use injectable drugs using clean needles and needle safety is imperative all right we're going to have to leave it there we took it kind of right to the end uh, thank you very much um carrie gillette and joanna mccabe for joining us this has been a great discussion